0: So I hope you like extended discussions of narrative taxonomies because otherwise this episode's gonna suck. All right, chapter 15 is called Aragog. I don't fucking know what that means. Uh, so the chapter opens up, and Harry is still all sad kid that things have changed, and Hagrid's gone, and Mumblecore is gone. And he's like, I'll go try to visit Bossy Girl. And so he asks Ron to visit Bossy Girl with him, and Ron's like, girlfriend in a coma, I know. I know. It's really serious. But then Pomfrey Lady is like, in a frankly stunning bit of unbridled honesty, is just like, no, we don't want any visitors because we're worried that someone is going to go in and kill her. Like, even if that's what you think is going to happen, maybe have some tact about expressing it that way to a bunch of 13-year-olds? Oh yeah, we're we're worried that someone's just going to outright murder your friend, so no visitors. And then the narrator goes into this really weird bit of like, wistful lamentation for the loss of mumblecore. It's like, as the sun set, its warmth no longer countenance, joy, and the laughter of a thousand children that once rang through the corridors, was silenced, stifled, in a melancholy hitherto unknown. Like, seriously, what the fuck is this shit? I'm starting to wonder if the narrator is, like, in some weird sense, a personification of the school itself. Which is why it gets all fucked up during the parts that aren't at Hogwarts. And i will just, like, Enter random people's thoughts. But then at the school, it has this like bizarre tonal shifts based on the actual physical and material changes of the Hogwarts administration. I'm working through this theory. It's not a perfect theory yet. And so then Harry is like obsessing over Mumblecore's words about how he only truly leaves when none are loyal to him. And this is good. I bet this is some shit that Harry's going to look back on when Mumblecore finally kicks the bucket and Harry and the gang are like, Yo, let's do it for Mumblecore, let's kill Voldemort or whatever, as a nod to that guy, and then he'll think back to that. Because, you know, the story's basically just fucking Star Wars and Mumblecore is Obi-Wan. And also the narrator describes the school as having an atmosphere of terror and suspicion. Which seems a little dramatic, given the circumstances. Remember, all this happened is a bunch of kids got injured mysteriously, but they're gonna be fine, and they suspended the principal. That's where we're at. And then Harry is like, well, I gotta be on the lookout for spiders because that was my task that was given to me at the end of the last chapter. And so then Crappy Dracula Kid tells, he's like, walks in, you know, walks in and he tells Snape, who's teaching the class, that Snape should be in charge and Snape smiles like, oh yeah, I should, but he plays it cool. It's like, let's not get our hopes up, buddy. And then Crappy Dracula Kid is like, it's just too bad that bossy girl wasn't literally killed by the mysterious Nazi thing or whatever. Then Ron does some seriously weird shit where he wants to kill crappy Dracula kid, but he obviously has no ability whatsoever to win that fight, so it's just this weird thing where they're, like, holding him back and he's trying to fight him, and then they go to herbology class, where they have to prune shrivel figs, as one does. And then that weird Ernie kid, well, I don't know, I think he's, like, fucking one of the Hufflepuffs or something, I don't even remember, but he's just, like, a dumbass kid, and he's, like, I bet the heir is crappy Dracula kid, what do you think, Harry? And Harry's like, uh, I found a psychedelic book that told me y'all are way off. Oh, look, a spider. And so they're spiders, and they're all going to the Forbidden Forest in that general direction. And so Harry and Ron decide to, once again, sneak out to the Forbidden Forest using their invisibility cloak. Like, you know what's fun about those Ocean's Eleven movies? Uh, is watching them come up with, like, cool creative plans for breaking into places? I'm just saying audiences like that kind of shit it's fun anyway so they talk about going to the forest and ron recall that ron for some reason didn't get the you have to go to the forest punishment in the last book and so he has no idea what's in store and he's like isn't the forest fucking crazy and harry's like well yeah there's like motherfuckers killing werewolves and shit and like drinking their blood and but there's also these fucking centaurs and they are certifiably badass and ron's like oh word okay And then they go to Professor Sue Grafton's class, and he's like, why is everyone so sad? And it's like, where the fuck has this dude been? Does Hogwarts have the world's least informative water cooler? What's going on in that teacher's lounge there? Come on, guys. Clue clue the man in. But then Sue Grafton is like, well, obviously Hagrid was doing the bad things, and now he's gone. Which is a view shared by literally no one. And so then later that night, everyone's hanging out in the common room, and Harry and Ron are like waiting to make their escape. And then Harry is sitting on his invisibility cloak, which you would think would make him look like he's floating, but no one seems to notice that. And then the narrator describes Ginny Weasley, fan of the show Ginny Weasley, as sitting on the chair that bossy girl usually sits at. And there's like no reason whatsoever to describe her that way other than to say like, hey, Ginny Weasley is going to be important to this story later. So much so that you might want to note the way that she's literally replacing bossy girl in this tableau that's all all right peace and then we get the scene of harry and ron sneaking into the uh fucking woods or whatever and i'm just gonna be honest this seems like this author probably wrote like sneaking out of hogwarts with an invisibility cloak like 500 different times and just like goes to her file and pulls one out and is like okay i'll use this because it's just like The most random, well, time for trying to drum up some suspicion here, but they're going to actually get to the forest because there's no way they're not going to because that's the whole fucking thing. And so they go to Haggard's house uh, to get his pig dog and they glue the pig dog's mouth shut because they're like, let's just take that guy for some reason. He might come in handy. And so they go to the forest, but it's pitch black. So Harry uses the flashlight app on his wand and Ron's like, oh, good thinking. I do that too, but my character involves this tedious, long-running gag about a broken wand that is in no way a metaphor for my own impotence, okay? And so they go, and they're all, like, still creeping in the dark forest. And I want to say that the pacing and tension in this part of the book are, uh, are actually really good. The narrator does a good job here of evoking an atmosphere of, like, darkness and tension and sporadic noises. And, like, the dog pig, like, hits Harry in his hand with his wet nose, and Harry gets all freaked out and stuff. And it's, like, it's good. And this actually maybe ties back into my theory of narrative control, Like, when they're just outside Hogwarts, the narrative tends to get pretty good. The stuff from the forest in the last book was good, that was like my favorite stuff, and here we're in the forest again and I'm digging it again. This could also just be a bias of mine because I'm into like dark foresty shit and horror as opposed to like boring institutional nonsense, but I also think this section of the book is objectively better than most of the rest of the book. So they see these weird lights and the dog pig barks and it's all creepy and they realize it's Ron's car, like Ron's dad's car. They're like oh isn't that funny i bet this fucking car has been driving around on its own in the forest like fucking kit from night rider anyway we should get back to the spider trail it's like gee i wonder what the fuck the point of that was maybe the car's gonna fucking save him and then these giant fucking spiders grab harry and ron and carry them off to meet their spider king (laughs) this part literally sounds like something that i made up to make fun of the book but it's not it's what happens the spiders grab Harry and Ron and they take him to meet their Spider King. And the Spider King is like, eh, just kill those guys. And Harry's like, no, Hagrid sent us. He's in trouble. And the Spider King is like, trouble you say? And Harry's like, yeah, they sent him to Whizpriz, probably trying to free your fucking weird spider ass. Uh, and the Spider King's like, okay, check it. Here's my backstory, you presumptive little shit. I came from a faraway land and was given to Hagrid as a gift when I was just an egg. So I'm not the weird beast that y'all are looking for. And Harry's like, so this is literally the same shit as the dragon from the last book? And Spider-King is like, yeah. But when some people started dying, I got I got fingered for it. And Hagrid protected me. And now I live out here, and Hagrid visits me, and he found me a brand new suit and a brand new car, and he even got me a little wife. And Harry's like, whoa. And Spider-King's like, but wherever I've gone, I was sure to find myself here. And Harry's like you could run all your life and not go anywhere and they're all like take away this ball and chain and they all just fucking start jamming out to social d it's super weird and then the spider king is like anyway so yeah i'm not the heir or the killer or any of that shit i'm just a guy who owes everything meaningful in his life to hagrid i promised never to speak the name of the real killer but he killed some girl in the bathroom and i don't fuck around with people in the bathroom i was born and raised in a cupboard and harry's like oh weird me too And the Spider-King's like, word. So, anyway, I guess we're done here. Also, the spiders are going to eat you now. And Harry's like, what the fuck? And the Spider-King's like, yeah, that's kind of what we do. And Harry's like, fuck, I'm I'm dead. But then the car comes, uh, literal deus ex machina again, and saves them. Comes barreling in, wrecking spiders left and right. And then Harry and Ron jump in, and they get the pig dog in, too, and they're fucking off. And so then they go home, and they're like, well, that was crazy. Haggard told us to do something that would have gotten us killed if not for a series of crazy, unforeseen circumstances. Nevertheless, he's exonerated in our minds for some reason. Anyway, you think the person who was killed in the bathroom stayed in the bathroom and became a ghost and is moaning Myrtle, and that's where the chapter ends. And this is where I try to develop my fucking author- authorial narrative bullshit. I'll just kind of roll through it. So basically, I want to talk a little about the narrator and how the narrator- As a character intrudes on the story, I said before that I think it's bizarre how this narrator doesn't seem to have any sort of epistemological foundation for what it knows. It just seems to know some things and not know other things, often at random, but usually within three separate spaces. First, it knows Harry's interior life fairly well. There are times where it either doesn't or pretends that it doesn't, sometimes to serve as a plot device, other times for seemingly no reason whatsoever. It also seems to know a bit about Ron's interior life, although more so when Ron is dealing with his family than when Ron is dealing with Harry or the school. And this goes back to my theory about the, the narrator shifting its knowledge base when it's not at Hogwarts. And lastly, and maybe most bizarrely, it knows about Uncle Vernon Dursley's interior life, but generally, again, only sometimes. And not in the sense that it only knows a little, but in the sense that it knows almost everything and then forgets it all. And that doesn't—there doesn't seem to be any sort of rhyme or reason to that whatsoever that I can figure, other than it seemed to know the most about Vernon Dursley before Harry and all the magic fuckers uh, came, came onto the scene. So, I don't know. But when I talk about narrator, I want to distinguish among what I would say is three narrative categories. The first is the actual character of the narrator. It's just, think of a person who was telling this story and imagine that they are just a separate character and we don't really know anything about their background or their backstory, but they are, in some sense, a character that is coloring this story. Which is totally distinct from J.K. Rowling, the person who actually wrote the books. As for J.K. Rowling, the person, I don't know anything about her. I also don't particularly care to know anything about her personally. This is maybe one of my more controversial literary habits, which is an outgrowth, really, of how I view the relationship between texts and society. But basically, without getting into it too far, the relationship between an author's personal life and their work is the least interesting authorial context to me. Maybe F. Scott Fitzgerald was going through some shit with Zelda, and that helped him write compellingly about alcoholism or toxic relationship dynamics or whatever... But whether he experienced that or not is not something that is particularly enlightening to me about a given work. If you can write convincingly about experiences you've never had, hey, great, just as well from my perspective. I don't fucking care. Uh, I think a lot of the reason that people like learning about the personal life of the author is that they think it might lend a sort of authenticity to the work. But I think this is a mistake, actually, because the narrative performance of the narrator is just as inauthentically constructed as any of the characters, and you wouldn't assign meaning in the author's personal life to the characters. So why would you do it to the narrator? And I also just think that it sort of it rests on this assumption about authorial intention that I think is wrong. But I don't think that any of that is particularly controversial. I think that most of that is just your standard literary analysis stuff. But, like I said, I don't know or care about J.K. Rowling's personal life. She may very well be a nice, kind-hearted person, although her uh, Twitter account would seem to suggest perhaps otherwise. Comes across like a boring scold on that, but whatever. That's not—it's neither here nor there. Her actual perspectives in politics are not as interesting to me as the unconscious things that come through the work itself. And this gets us to the third category— which is the implied author, which is not J.K. Rowling the person, but more J.K. Rowling the construction of who she is as this sort of authorial process that takes place over the course of these books. And that's distinct from the author as a person, but it's also distinct from the narrator. So I can sort of vaguely understand that this is a person writing in a late 20th, early 21st century time period that had certain historical things going on at the time and that's fun and cool and i can think about that and i can relate some of the stuff that's going on the world to some of the stuff that's happening in the book and i also know that most writers in the english language are drawing upon some sort of corpus of literary modes and uh myths and things like that right so you know about the hero's journey you know about christianity and things like that and those are all just sort of background information that anybody that shares the interpretive community of the harry potter universe is likely to know so i tend to think of the implied author as more of this weird process that exists in that time and space and that you can sort of think about and their ideologies and their perspectives may be at odds with the professed ideologies and perspectives of you know, J.K. Rowling, the actual human being, which is all really just to say that the thing that I'm noticing about the implied author is that as she becomes better at the craft of writing, she relies less on narrative uncertainty and jarring tonal POV shifts and things like that, but there seem- she seems to settle on this sort of idea of we know things in Harry's life And we only know things about other people outside of the confines of Hogwarts. And it'll be interesting to see if that's something that she's consciously doing, and if there's a reason for that. Right now, I think that she's just shooting from the hip. There seems to be a negotiation taking place, where as the author, as the implied author moves along, the narrator sharpens and hones in on certain aspects of when they can shift tone and perspective and things like that this i'm only talking about it in this chapter because it seems so jarring some of the tonal shifts seem so jarring that it's like she's still playing with like still fine-tuning that aspect of her craft so so yeah it'll be interesting to see if and whether that relationship develops cool i'll see you uh real soon